Good afternoon, church family. And it just means something different to say that now. On the heels of six, seven months of transition in my family's life and the huge investment you guys have made in us, sending us to the pastor's college and just the, the, the upheaval that causes as we left a church in Georgia and we, we joined a church in Louisville, Kentucky, and now to be standing in front of you and to say church family just means something more. Uh, the church in Louisville is fabulous and it has been a great experience, but this is the church that God has been stirring up our heart for. And this is the church family where we feel most at home, most knit in together for the work of the gospel. And as I look at you guys today, I am so thankful. The investment you've made is, has been a huge blessing to us. The Pastors College program is a rigorous program where we're surrounded with care and discipleship and Bible study. And it's just, it's paying off. Uh, it's, it's building fruit in our lives that wouldn't have been there if we didn't have that opportunity. And so I hope, I hope to encourage you this morning. Um, I am so thankful for each one of you and the, the sacrifices and the investment and the support that you've given to us. Uh, and it's so good to worship with you today. Our text for this morning is Mark eleven twenty-seven through 12, 12. Mark eleven twenty-seven through 12, 12. Let's read the text together, and then we'll pray, and then we will jump right in, uh, starting in chapter 11 and verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him 
and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Pray with me. Oh, Father, please come and bless the preaching of your word today. I pray that you would cause Mark chapter 11 and 12 to come alive in our hearts in a fresh way, and that we would see the wonder of what you did in sending your son to this earth uh, in a way that we've never seen it before. Be with us today, Lord. Fill us with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. For our fifth anniversary, Becca and I took a trip to Tulum, Mexico. And if you don't know anything about Tulum, Mexico, the reason most people go to Tulum is for the beaches. It's beautiful, the Yucatan Peninsula. But one activity that we were really excited to do while we were there is a little bit unique. And I actually, before we started planning for the trip, I didn't even know that that this was a thing. But in Tulum, there are these underwater caves, which they call cenotes. And they're filled with this deep, beautiful, clear water. And you can, you can enter the cave usually through something that kind of looks like a, a small lake or a pond in the middle of the forest, uh, in the jungle, it feels like to me. <laughs> and you go in and you can go under into these caverns, and you're going underwater and then coming up in the surface, and you're just in this different world. But the guide service that we used... Halfway through the tour, we were in this magnificent cavern, and they turned all of the guide's flashlights off. And so you're underwater, you're you're half submerged in the water, underground, and then the lights go out. And the darkness is, at, at the risk of embarrassing myself, the darkness is terrifying. You're just, you're scared, and the darkness is oppressive. It feels like it's beating on you. Uh, and so it, it's, it's, a, it's a wild experience. Now, instead of just turning the flashlights back on and saying, oh, okay, see, don't you see how scary it is in the dark? They, they take a picture of every couple that's coming through the cave in the dark. And so I was going to show you the picture, but then I was afraid I would lose your attention for the rest of the sermon because you look like a deer in the headlights. It's just like you, you look terrified in the picture. But when they take that picture in the flash of the camera, you go from this deep, penetrating darkness to all at once seeing the entire cave, this alien landscape lit up, the stalagmites and the stalactites of the cave all just flash into view for one second. In our text today, this world is like that cave. Our hearts are like that cave. And Jesus' incarnation is like a flash of lightning. When you realize who Jesus is, when you realize the full importance of the incarnation, it acts like a flash of light that reveals what's really here in this world. It reveals what's really there in your heart and in my heart. 
But in that same flash of light, we see something more beautiful than we could have ever dared to believe about God. On the one hand, the light lights up something ugly about us, but it shows us something incredibly beautiful about Him. The main point of our text today could be summarized like this. The unveiling of Jesus' identity exposes every heart and instigates a response. The unveiling of Jesus' identity exposes every heart and it instigates a response. You see, in the temple that day, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were confronted with the identity of Christ and the encounter turned on the light in their hearts. Friends, no one is indifferent to that light. Once it is turned on, it does something to you. It does something to me. It instigates a response in us. And Mark wants his readers and each one of us in the room today to have that same encounter with Christ. Our text is going to give us three main points today. One, a crucial question. Chapter 11, 27 to 33. Two, a staggering answer. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And three, the Father's plan and our response. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. What we're going to find as we walk through the text today is that Jesus takes a hostile, insulting question and turns it into an opportunity to reveal his identity and expose the hearts of those who ask the question to begin with. But then he pulls back the curtain to show us that this is more than just the rebuke of some men in the temple that day. No, this, this reveals the eternal plan of the Father, which will instigate a response in every human heart. Let's look at point number one, a crucial question. Chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. Now, the setting here, Jesus is back in the temple, and you know from Ron's sermon last week that he rode into Jerusalem on the first day of the week, a Sunday, in what's known as the triumphal entry, and he's received as a king. And then the very next day, he goes to the temple and he clears the temple of all those who are seeking to make a profit off the worship of the living God. He's, he's indignant. He's flipping the tables of the money changers. My house will be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And so we don't have to think too hard about why the chief priests and the scribes would be coming to confront him. He just kicked a bunch of people out of the temple yesterday. So they're coming to say, hey, buddy, what are you doing? And they question his authority. Who gave you this authority? Do you have authority to do these things? And I think we have to stop for a second because at the first reading of this text, we might be thinking, what is, what is Jesus up to? He appears like he is unwilling to answer the question. You know, maybe it was an honest question. Maybe they were just coming saying, hey, you know, we, you caused a disturbance yesterday. What authority did you have to do that? You know, maybe Jesus could have just responded, you know, this is a great opportunity to share the gospel with these men. They're asking about the authority of Christ. Let me explain to you where my authority comes from. Is Jesus being evasive or dismissive or even harsh? Look how Jesus responds at the end of verse 30. He says, answer me. Now, I think it'll help us to understand what Jesus is doing if we, we see first that in Jesus' day and also sometimes still in ours, it's common for a teacher to answer a question with a question. It helps the student to think more deeply about the subject at hand. That was common in Jesus' day. But more importantly, 
Jesus is aware that they do not want to hear the answer. Jesus is aware of something in their heart, and his question is designed to expose it, to bring it to light. So let's look more closely at Jesus' question to them. They say, who gave you this authority? Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And this is what he says. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Was the baptism of John. Is this completely off topic? No, no. First, the question has the seeds of an answer to the chief priest question. Because the baptism of John. Now, who did John the Baptist baptize? The, the whole gospel of Mark begins with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And at that moment, a voice from heaven is heard saying what? Saying, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. So there are the seeds of an answer. Might a voice from heaven have something to do with Jesus' authority? But also note the categories that Jesus chooses to use. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Was it from God or from man? You see, the scribes and the chief priests, they were prepared to have a theological debate with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, the law of Moses allows the money changers to be in the temple. But that's not what is on Jesus' mind today. Jesus could have won that debate, but what he has in mind is to broaden the categories by a thousand. He says, no, 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 no. We're talking about authority categories that are earthly versus heavenly. You see, Jesus is really saying with his question, are you men willing to accept that my authority is higher than your own? Are you willing to accept that there is an authority higher than human authority? Now take a look at their response to Jesus' question in verses 31 and 32. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people. They begin reasoning among themselves based on public opinion. So let's call this what it is. They decide not to tell Jesus what they really think. They decide to lie to him instead of saying, you know, we really think the baptism of John was from men. They don't say that, even though that's what they believe, because they're courting public favor. The lie exposes their motives. You see, they do not care where Jesus' authority comes from. Jesus' authority represents a challenge to their authority. They want to eliminate him and court favor with the people. You see, the lie confirms that their original question to Jesus wasn't honest at all. What they were really saying is, Jesus, you have no authority here. Get off our turf. But my friends, though the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were not interested in the source and nature of Jesus' authority, we cannot make that same mistake today. The truth about that authority is crucially important for us. You see, this scene is meant to be the climax of a theme that's run right through Mark's gospel. In chapter 1, Mark writes that the crowds were amazed at the authority of Jesus' teaching. Kind of an interesting comment to make. 
and also amazed at his authority over demons. In chapter 2, authority is the point of conflict when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Do you have the authority to forgive sins? Chapter 3, Jesus gives his disciples authority to cast out demons. Chapter 4, Jesus has authority over the wind and the sea. Chapter 5, Jesus has the authority to raise the dead. We could go on and on. Mark mentions Jesus' authority in nearly every chapter. James Edwards puts it this way in his commentary on Mark. The characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression on his followers and caused the greatest offense to his opponents was his sovereign freedom and magisterial authority. Until chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, however, Mark has not divulged the source of Jesus' authority. Now, for the first time, in the temple and before the Sanhedrin, that is, in the most authoritative place, before the most authoritative body in Israel, Jesus opens a window of understanding into his own authority. So Mark has been building toward this moment for a long time. But we need to stop and ask ourselves why. You, you see, is, is Mark just writing a treatise on authority? Is that Mark's purpose here? Does he want to lift up authority so that we can all say, hey, friends, this is what real authority looks like? I don't think so. I think Mark is writing to lift up Jesus. And so for Mark, authority must be saying something about who Jesus is. Perhaps the clearest example of this is in chapter 4 with a story that we're all very familiar with as Jesus calms the wind and the sea and the storm. You see, Jesus and his disciples were sailing as the storm arose, and the disciples are terrified. They're afraid for their lives, and they're begging, Jesus, please help us. Do you even care that we're dying here? And Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea, and, and it becomes completely calm. But note the disciples' response in Mark 4:41. They became very much afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this? even the wind and the sea obey him. When the disciples saw that Jesus had authority over the weather and the ocean, their response wasn't, wow, what authority? Their response was, who are we dealing with here? And Mark wants every one of his readers and you and I to be sitting in the boat, trembling with those disciples, asking that same question. Who then is this man? And that is the question that Jesus is about to answer in the form of a parable, which brings us to point number two, a staggering answer. Look with me at chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. Jesus tells a parable about a landowner who plants a vineyard and hires tenants to care for and cultivate it. And at harvest time, the owner sends his servants to collect the fruit but they are rejected and some are killed. Now, at the climax of the story in verses 6 through 8, he sends his beloved son. Can you, can you feel the tension as the Sanhedrin? What do you do? What do you do when someone tells a parable? You try to find yourself in it. That's what you're all doing right now. I know it. You don't have to admit it. That's what the Sanhedrin are doing. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders are listening to this parable and they're saying, who, who are we in the parable? Now, Jesus starts in 12.1 by quoting Isaiah chapter 5. 
And in Isaiah, Israel is the vineyard and God is the owner. Now, Isaiah's point is to rebuke Israel for failure to bear spiritual fruit. Isaiah is saying, God has cared for you. God has planted you well, and you're not bearing fruit. But Jesus adds some new characters to the story, and he has a different emphasis. In verses 2 through 5, Jesus introduces a series of servants or slaves who were sent from the owner to the tenants to gather the fruit. Now, if, if Israel is the vineyard and the owner is God, and the owner is sending a series of slaves or servants, this would be language that everybody in the crowd that day is familiar with. This must be the prophets who were often mistreated by Israel's rulers. But if the slaves and the servants are the prophets, then what does that mean? Who are the tenants? Oh, then the tenants must be the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Oh, they must be seething. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders must be seething as they realize that they are the wicked tenants in the story. But we haven't covered all the new characters in the story yet. Who, then, is the beloved son? Now, I want you to imagine yourself standing in the crowd that day. You've probably heard of Jesus. You've heard of his miracles. You've heard of his teaching. And perhaps you're glad to see the arrogant Sanhedrin get put in their place that day. But as the parable tracks through God's history with his people, through the prophets, all of a sudden it breaks right into the present moment. You see, if this is true, if Israel's the vineyard and God is the owner and the tenants are the scribes and elders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, then you must be watching as the beloved son makes his appeal to the tenants right now in front of you in real time. The landowner's son is speaking to the wicked tenants in front of you. This is God's son in God's temple appealing to God's people. Now, we have to stop. Oh, we have to shake ourselves out of our malaise and our easy assumptions about the incarnation because Church family, it's, it's too easy for us to assume the incarnation. The incarnation, we're in danger of letting the incarnation become commonplace. God, the creator, was speaking, had come to earth, and was speaking to his people in the temple that day, right in front of them. All motives all of our motives, all of their motives that day in the temple are exposed as either good or evil, right or wrong, consistent or inconsistent with the creator's purposes. If God the creator is speaking to you, you must take notice. Note the Sanhedrin. Their motives were, were exposed and defined as evil rather than good because of the identity of the son. You see, if Jesus is just some random guy flipping, temples in the temp, flip, flipping tables in the temple, then they're absolutely right to say, hey, hey, get, hey, dude, what are you doing? Get out of here. No, but if Jesus is the son of God, well, let's just say that the question about authority is pretty well settled. Now, what about you and me? Before we scoff at the Sanhedrin and say, I, I would never be like that, 
what about Jesus' authority in your life and Jesus' authority in my life? You see, just like the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, you and I are going to be judged by how we respond to this son. Take another look at the motives that the Bible describes for us, the motives at work in the heart of the chief priests. In chapter 11, 32 and 12, 12, it says fear of man. Fear of man was one of their motives. Chapter 12, verse 38, a desire to be praised and honored by men. Chapter 12, verse 40, a love of money or greed. Chapter 12, verse 40, a preoccupation with outward appearance. Now, if you're like me, the first time I looked at the list of things going on in the heart of the Sanhedrin, these chief priests, scribes, and elders, I was kind of like, you know, we all kind of operate with a spectrum of sin in our minds. We don't like to talk about it because we know that sin is sin, but we're all kind of like, oh, that was a G-rated sin, and then, okay, okay, this is, oh, this is our. So this list, if you're being honest, if you're like me at all, you read the list and you're like, oh, man, this list of sins seems to fall on the lighter side. Jesus, you're being a bit harsh. But that's precisely the point. The Sanhedrin were willing to throw Jesus out of the temple that day. They were willing to go plot his death because he cut across these motives in their heart. He cut across their desire to be the center of attention. He cut across their desire to live for their own ease, for money, for praise and applause for men. Have you been guilty of these things? I know I have. Left unchecked, these same kinds of motivations would lead each one of us to throw Jesus out of our lives. So I want to invite you once again to consider the identity of the Son, to think with fresh eyes about the importance of the Incarnation. Because if we know who He is, then what happens next in the parable is just astounding. Look at verses 7 and 8. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Wait, the son is murdered? The creator the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the creator God who came down and is standing in his own temple that day, the temple built to honor him, is killed? Surely not. But we know the the rest of the story. We know that's true. Just three days from the date of this conversation, there's going to be a Roman cross The one with all of the authority is going to lay it down and die. What could possibly induce the son to do this? And perhaps more to the point, given the context of this parable, what could possibly induce a father to send his beloved son to these tenants? Is he crazy? What is his motivation? The answer to that question represents our only hope when we stand before a holy God. 
And it brings us to our final point, the Father's plan and our response. Oh, friends, look with me at verses 10 and 11. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, Jesus shifts gears here, and he quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And look how he introduces the quotation. He says, have you not even read this scripture? Jesus is signaling something here. One, he's saying that the the chief priests, scribes, and elders ought to have understood this parable because they should have been familiar with this prophecy in the book of Psalms. Now, the metaphor changes. We've been in a vineyard, but now we're in a temple. We've been gardening, but now we're building. And note who is building. Verse 11, this came about from who? This came about from the Lord. So the Lord is building something. It's a structure that's completely dependent upon one stone in particular, the cornerstone. Now, the original builders rejected this important stone, but even their rejection, and this is so crucial, even their rejection was under the sovereign plan of the Father. This came about from the Lord. Now, what is it that God is building There are very few questions that are more important for us this morning than this question. You see, the the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they were building something too, but that something was going to get completely destroyed. And now our eyes are drawn to something else that's being built, something that the Lord himself is building. And we do not have to guess what it is. Because the rest of the Bible revels in the glory of this cornerstone. Perhaps 1 Peter chapter 2 puts it best. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I ask you again, what kind of son would go on this mission? And what kind of a father would send his son to these people? Friends, this morning, if you see yourself in the parable, we have to see ourselves as the tenants. The only kind of a father who would send his son to people like us is a father who patiently loves his rebellious people. Only a sovereign God who's powerful enough to use the murder of his beloved son as the very act which accomplishes the salvation of his people. You see, Jesus' identity as the Son of God gives him absolute authority over his creatures, absolute authority over you and I. But Jesus does something absolutely astounding. When he comes to earth, how does he use that authority? What does he do with it? 
He lays it down and he dies on a cross. He lives the life that we could not have ever lived and dies the death that we deserved to die to make a way for us to be a part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How will you respond to this cornerstone this morning? There are only two choices. We either reject or we marvel. We will either reject him or we will worship him. There are many who prefer the darkness of that cave in their hearts to the light of the Son of God. Oh, there are many who all they want to do is turn the light back off so that they can get back to the shallow, futile, finally unsatisfying things that they're building for themselves apart from the light of the knowledge of God. You see, the Sanhedrin were building something else. They were building a monument to themselves. They viewed Jesus' mission as an interruption, and so they rejected him. But look at verse 11. For some, they'll see the light of the incarnation, and it will be marvelous in their eyes. The death and the resurrection of the Son, in that, some will see the patience and love of a father. They will see the staggering sacrifice of the sun and will look around at the dark cave of their hearts, their own hollow ambitions, and utterly reject that filthy cave and run into the forgiveness of the Son of God. And Jesus will be marvelous in their eyes. I'd like to suggest two main ways that we can apply the text this morning. First, consider what you are building. You know, we may not be the Sanhedrin walking out of this room to literally plot the death of the Son of God, but every single one of us is more than capable of building our lives on a foundation other than the cornerstone. Have you been guilty of subtly rejecting the authority of the Son in some area of your life? Do you have sins sinful attitudes hidden in that cave of your heart? Oh, friends, Christ died to bring you into the light. There's love. There's mercy. There's forgiveness. If you're sitting in that seat this morning and you know something's there, you know you'd rather the tour guide turn the flashlight back off, would you please go talk to your community group leader? Would you talk to a friend? Would you pray with someone before you leave the room today. Don't let it stay. Don't let it stay. Everything that we build apart from the cornerstone is going to be destroyed. Second, we ought to marvel at what God is building. Uh, does the church sometimes seem weak and poor to you? Not necessarily this church in particular, but the church. How about the message of the church, the gospel? Does it sometimes seem inadequate in the face of the screaming message of the culture all around us? Inadequate in the face 
of news about war and rumors of war inadequate in the face of a global pandemic does the gospel seem like a weak message sometimes oh friends we should be deeply encouraged by this passage the father god is on a mission he is he is doing something on the earth he's building his church he's gathering a people for himself do you think that his plan will fail there is nothing in the universe more certain than the success of the church and it's not because of how talented we are it's not because of how pretty we look it's not because of how wealthy we are how much cultural influence we wield it's not because of any of those things it's because of the sovereign plan of the father god and the son the cornerstone and the holy spirit who dwells in each one of us this is what the lord is doing oh and it is marvelous let's pray father we're so grateful to come and medic meditate together today on your word father i pray that as we worship and we head out for dinner together and fellowship i pray that the truths the truths from mark chapter 11 and 12 that they would stick in our hearts that you would cause these things to produce the fruit uh, for which you sent this text lord and father if there are any of us and it can happen to any of us at any time who are looking around saying you know what the light has been turned off and i've been getting comfortable in the cave of my own heart oh lord i pray that you would gently draw us to repentance to confession so that we can come back out into the light and love and fellowship of your people in jesus name amen